I am not an expert. I've never published a book or taught a class, but I love quilting, and I love talking about quilting. I make a lot of mistakes, but I like to think that sometimes I learn from them and get just a little bit better. If hearing about someone else's goofs and mess-ups makes you feel better about yours, then I've done my job. Join me now as we talk about quilting for the rest of us. Hey, I'm Sandy, and I'm a quilter, and welcome to episode 170A, in which I'm home from Burma, and this is the textile mix. I've decided I'm going to do two episodes about my um, recent trip to Burma slash Myanmar, um, because in one, I will talk about textiles and um, all the kinds of things that quilters and fiber artists would be interested in. Um, And then the other one I will talk about the rest of the trip. That way, if you only want to hear about fabric-y stuff, you just listen to this episode and you can skip the next one. But if you're interested in what else I was doing while I was there, I will talk about it as much as I'm able to. Although I think at this point, I feel pretty confident I can talk about most of it um, in my next episode. I probably won't record that second episode for another couple of days. Um, It's Saturday afternoon right now as I'm recording this, and this is the first I've felt anything even closely approximating awake enough (laughs) to do this episode. Um, Hopefully it'll turn out okay. If not, if I get to the end and and listen to it and decide I just sound really boring, then you'll never hear this. I'll do it again later. Um, But if you're listening to this, that means, you know, I decided it would pass muster and I'll post it. But tomorrow um, we're doing my side of the family for Christmas at our house. So I'm not going to be able to record anything tomorrow. So it'll probably be Monday before I roll around to time again to record the second part of this episode. And that's okay because it's going to take me a while to figure out how to talk about the trip. (laughs) In that way. The textile part is easy. So I'm going to tell you about all the wonderful, beautiful textiles that I met while I was in Burma. I'm not going to start with any announcements or anything like that. And in this episode, I'm also not going to do listener feedback. I just haven't had the wherewithal to pull it together. Um, So this might be, I don't know, we'll see. This might be a shorter episode. It depends on how wordy I get about all the beautiful textiles that I met. Um, So anyway, to recap, and in case anybody is a new listener just tuning in on this episode, I spent the better part of the month of December in a country which used to be called Burma, is now called Myanmar, um, spelled M-Y-A-N-M-A-R, but pronounced by all the people who live in the country as Myanmar or Myanmar. And there's all sorts of stories why I tend to continue to call it Burma, but I am starting to change now because some of those reasons, you know, we're we're trying to change. But um, that's for that other episode. Um, But I know there were a couple of people that were a little confused when I was talking alternately about going to Burma and to Myanmar, and people were like, wait, did you visit two countries? Are they the same country? What? But they are the same country. Um, So to talk about the textiles, I was there, uh, we left... Rochester, November 29th, the Saturday right after Thanksgiving, which due to 30 hours of travel time plus um, crossing over an inter- well, international dateline, but you're 12 hours ahead when you're there, 11 and a half, 12 hours ahead. Um, I got in Monday morning their time, which was Sunday night, Eastern time here in the U.S., um, And we actually got in fine. We had no delays, managed to make all of our connections, although one of them we had to kind of speed walk towards to make it. Um, 
but the, the that trip was fine. Coming home was a different story, but that'll be in that other episode. Um, we got there Monday, December 1st, and then we left for home again, or at least two of us did out of the four that went together. Um, two of us came home. Uh, we got home very, very, very late Saturday, December 20th, if not Sunday morning, <laughs> December 21st by the time I actually walked in my front door. But again, that's a story for another time. Um, I want to focus just on textiles in Burma, uh, in Myanmar. It's there before you even ask. No, there's there's no real quilting tradition in Burma. I'm sure there are probably people who do quilts. I have met um, at least one, if not two, people who have now moved to the United States that have done quilting. It isn't something that's um, a traditional art there. So if they are quilters, they've met it somewhere very recently through other channels. What's big there is weaving, as you might expect. Most traditional societies have spinning and weaving. Um, Weaving has been around since, you know, the Stone Age. Um, Spinning has been around since the Stone Age. I did some studying on that when I had my sabbatical a couple of years ago. There's a fantastic book called Women's Work, The First 20,000 Years. Um, That's all about how spinning and weaving um, have impacted women since, you know, almost the dawn of time. But anyway, uh, I was very interested, particularly on this trip, in trying to see some spinning, as I've been kind of playing around with that a little bit. Um, so I had told my friends, you know, hey, any chance we have to visit spin- spinners or weavers, I'd, I'd really be all about that. And we actually had a chance to visit several. Um, so let me do a, a, give you a one definition, one word you're going to hear me using over and over again. Um, there's something called a longi. It's L-O-N-G-G-Y-E. It's longi. It's basically the same idea as a sarong. Men and women traditionally in Burma both wear these kind of sarongs. They're, it's a large piece of fabric that they wrap around their waist and they knot it. And that's what they wear. Um, the difference between men and women's longi is the fabric. Men's longi are pretty much invariably, I don't think I ever saw one that wasn't, a um, kind of a square plaid, you know, where it's an even mix and they're usually dark colors, so it might be a plaid that's like a green and a dark red or a green and a navy blue. Um, fairly subdued, dark colors, um, very basic design. And they knot theirs somehow in the front. I've never asked a man to show me how he knots his longi. That might be considered a little forward. Um, but I know their knots are in the front. And sometimes you will see them if they're working or if they're playing soccer or something, they'll pull the back up around to the front and tuck it in so it kind of turns into shorts. Women's um, longi are knotted on the side. And they're not actually really knotted. From the best I can tell, I have had a couple of women try to show me how to do it. I've never trusted the knot. Um, but you really just kind of twist it and tuck it in. And it isn't unusual to see people walking along the street pulling their um, longi out and re-knotting it because the way it's folded, you can re-knot it without showing anything. It's because it's actually kind of folded around you and then pulled back across and knotted. Um, women's longi are beautiful. Variety of colors, variety of weaves, anything from black to bright, you know, peacock blue and all sorts of um, differentiation in the design. Plus, traditionally, each ethnic group, each tribe, had its own distinct weaving designs, as again happens often in traditional societies. So my friend that was uh, kind of organized our trip, her name is Kadin. She was born in Burma. She is of the Kachin, K-A-C-H-I-N, 
ethnic group, and that was the group I was going to visit. I've Again, I'll talk about that more in the other episode, but I've got kind of a long history with the Kachin um, people of Burma. And so that's who I was going back to visit this time. And we were tagging along with Kadin. She was bringing her husband, who is not um, from Burma. He is American-born Chinese. Um, she was bringing him back with her for the holidays. And so they were, they're still there. They're spending, well, they might be coming back today. Um, but they were spending through Christmas, and they'll be back right around New Year. Um, the other woman that I traveled with, Jane, from my church, she and I left and came home on the 20th so that we could be home with our families for Christmas. Uh, but in any case, uh, Kadin was able to identify, you know, we'd be walking in the street and she'd say, oh, well, that design is Chin or that design is Corinne, that design is Kachin. Um, I can recognize now Kachin pretty readily and I can generally recognize Corinne, which is spelled like the woman's name, Karen, but it's pronounced Corinne because we have a lot of Corinne people in our church. So I've seen a lot of their clothing, so I can pretty much um, pick those out of a crowd. Chin, not quite as reliably because um, many of the Chin that are in our church adopted Western dress quite quickly. So I only very rarely see Chin traditional dress. So I'm not able to identify that quite as um, quickly or some of the other ethnic groups from Burma that we now have in our church. Again, you know, I don't see their ethnic dress quite as often, so I can't identify those. Um, but Kachin, yeah, I pretty much picked out what the identifying features were. So I think in a lineup <laughs> at this point, I might be able to pretty reliably pick out what a Kachin design is. Um, their designs tend to have a lot of diamond and angular shapes. Now, that's hard to say because when you're weaving, it's hard to do anything that's round, but you can kind of approximate around. Theirs tend to have a lot of X's and diamonds in them, and they tend to be more of a all-over design, um, or there's more of it. <laughs> there's more of the design in the longi than like a Corinne has a little bit less of the design. Anyway, um, all of that is meaningless to you when you're listening to me talk about this rather than seeing pictures. But in any case, I have actually accumulated quite a few longi over the years from my very first trip um, to Burma in 1998. When I went to Thailand in 2008, I bought some um, and I've had a couple of gifted to me uh, by people that I've met here in the United States. Um, but I don't trust the knots. So all of those that I've owned for all these years, um, I've only worn one of them a couple of times when I pinned it up, you know, to wear it to a special event. And I would just use safety pins to hold it together. Um, a couple of others I used as tablecloths on occasion, but I don't like to do that often because it can really do a number on... Um, Sometimes the design is woven into the fabric. Sometimes it's embroidered over the top of the fabric. So if it's an embroidered design, you end up with um, things on the back that can catch. And so it's not always a good idea to use it as tablecloth. So anyway, I've had all these longi that I've never really been able to use. But I solved that problem on this trip. And I'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, in general, the sewing machines, well, in fact, I mean, this was the case Every single sewing machine I saw that I ever laid eyes on, they're all treadle machines. Um, they look a lot like the old featherweights, you know, the heavy black thing with the crank on the back. Um, but they're different brands from China. There weren't any single featherweights there. Um, I did take a couple of pictures, so eventually I'll get those posted on my blog. Um, some of them just had gorgeous labels on them. <laughs> they were kind of works of art of their own. Um, and that makes sense because not only... 
was Burma, is it, it's now considered a developing country. Man, it's changed in the 16 years since I was there. Um, and most of that change has just been in the last two or three years since they've opened up and, you know, are pretending to go towards democracy, although that's still a little questionable, but that's for the other episode. Um, but, you know, it's a very impoverished country because of significant government corruption. So there's a handful of people that are extraordinarily wealthy and everybody else is living in poverty or has been. Um, over the last, you know, probably decade, there's been more, much more of a growth of a middle class. So it's starting to even out some, but there is still an issue. And electricity is still an issue. In the major metropolitan areas, pretty much everybody has electricity, but there tend to be frequent power outages because their infrastructure is just not up to the population and, you know, the, the growth of stores and industry and everything. Their wiring stinks. Pardon me, I was going to use another word. Um, when I was there 16 years ago, we drove through the countryside and it was not at all, in, it, most of the villages, if there was one electric light bulb in the village, that was something. Most people were still at that point, very little electricity had, you know, they were fireplace, their agriculture, big farming community in most of the country. Um, so, you know, most people just dawned to dust kind of things like we did on the frontier. There is a lot more electricity now. I didn't really see any villages that didn't have any, although when we were in Yangon, a.k.a. Rangoon, the, the former capital city, the capital's now moved to Naypyidaw, but um, Rangoon was the the capital city for many, many years, and um, that's all, you know, electricity is fine there, but um, I saw billboards in a few different places that talked about some companies who as public service, we're working on getting generators out to villages where there still was no electricity. So the further away you get from the metro areas, the less electricity there is. And if you do have electricity, like I said, it's highly unreliable. We we had outages, you know, even when we were in hotels, all the electricity would go out. Um, so it makes sense that people rely on electricity as little as possible. Um, this is also true, as an aside here, to uh, construction work. we uh, There was a ton of construction going on. Again, over the last couple of years, huge opening up, a lot of businesses coming in from other countries and trying to establish presences, presences in Burma. So there's a lot of new buildings going up. There's old buildings being rehabbed. The roads are all under construction. Um, and 90% of that work is done by hand. I mean, I saw one jackhammer the entire time we were there. Everywhere else, it was um, men breaking up rocks with sledgehammers and chisels and creating gravel and women piling gravel on their heads in baskets and carrying it to wherever the gravel was going to get dumped. They were spreading tar and gravel by hand to build roads. I mean, it's just, it's all done by hand. Um, it, it Just the the level of work that the average person does there in an average day um, is just incredible. But anyway, that's a, that's a digression. Um, so most of the sewing machines that I ever saw were treadle machines. I'm sure there are probably factories somewhere that have electric um, machines. I just never saw them. Um, I did also see, uh, in terms of irons, when I was in seamstress shops, tailors, garment sewers, I saw more irons that you had to plug in. But when we were out in um, like empowerment training centers um, in the IDP camps, the, which I'll talk about in a little bit, um, places run by not-for-profits and everything. 
I was actually seeing the old school irons that you heated up over fires and used. Um, Again, lack of electricity and lack of reliable electricity. And as we all know, irons are electricity hogs. So if something's going to blow a fuse, it's going to be the iron. So they really, you know, I saw irons that here I've only seen in the Smithsonian. You know, it's pretty amazing. Um, I did see some sergers very industrial strength. They look to be like from the 50s or 60s. Again, very mechanical. No computerized machines there. All the old, you know, old school uh, mechanical metal parts, um, which means they do last forever. And people can actually repair them. Um, We had that conversation here with uh, some members of the refugee community. A woman came to me at one point um, who is not a sewer, not a quilter or anything. She doesn't really know anything about sewing machines. And she said, well, we need to teach some some of the men. They used to, te- they used to repair sewing machines back in the camps. Um, I'm sure they could repair the machines we have here. And I said, they really can't. And I had to explain to her, because I had been in the camps. I saw the machines. I, already, I was prepared for the fact that, yes, these are the old school um, mechanical machines. And I said, our machines now generally, by and large, are computerized in some way or another even the less expensive ones have computers and i said it's a completely different thing now and once she looked at a couple and these were even the inexpensive machines we had you know bought at sears or gotten off craigslist or whatever to donate to people from the community um you know she's like oh wow you're right these are not something that somebody who has report you know repaired a mechanical machine would even have a clue how to start that doesn't mean they can't be trained but training takes money so that was a whole different issue um so, yes, I mean, they do have sergers, uh, but again, they, they look to me like something that they had probably had since the 1950s or 1960s, and really old school stuff. Um, but this is the stuff that still works, and it's the stuff they can keep repairing and have it keep working forever. Um, there were a lot of uh, seamstress tailor shops. Um, there were the markets, they have, you know, public open markets all over the place, and quite regularly, I would see somebody had set up a little shop with a couple of sewing machines and they would make you shirts right there while you were shopping. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about my own experience with a um, tailor seamstress later. Um, but they were all over the place. That is, And actually, that's one of the skills that um, they do in terms of when they're training uh, women like the Women's Empowerment Center that I visited and the IDP camps and such, where they're trying to give people marketable job skills. Generally speaking, it's learning how to sew and learning how to make garments because there's a big market for that there. Um, So we visited two different weaving shops. They called them factories, but, you know, for us, we have a different image in our mind of what a factory is. Um, Both of these places had maybe... Well, one had maybe, well, it might have had about 10 looms. The other one had probably 12 looms. I think the big, you know, the big wooden looms that take up, you know, several feet worth of space. Um, And in both cases, these were really kind of demonstration. I mean, they were creating, they were weaving, they were creating product that would eventually be sold. But obviously they had far more product in their store than what was created out of that one little shop. So it's clearly they have several other shops in other places that all send it into these particular stores. Um, The first place was uh, really kind of focused on silk. I didn't see any sign of cotton weaving while we were there. Now, maybe they do, you know, silk for such a long, for so long a period of time and then cotton. But even in the shop, I think everything, 
well, no, one of the things I bought was cotton. Everything else was silk. So they must have, you know, cotton weaving somewhere. Um, but in the shop that we visited, it was all silk. And oh, the colors, <laughs> the colors were just, I was drooling. It was just beautiful. Um, this was near the town where the Upain Bridge is, which is a very well-known tourist spot. Um, Upain Bridge is a long bridge, kind of almost a causeway style bridge that goes from one side of a lake to the other. And it's up on stilts because when it's rainy season, the water is several feet higher than what it is when we were there. It's quite low. Rainy season is um, our summer. So like June, July, August, sorry, our U.S. summer, June, July, August, maybe into September. Although this year they said it went really late. It started late and it went late and they still had rainy season in November, but that's late for them. Um, So anyway, this time of year, it's very dry, and so a lot of the rivers and lakes and such were very, very low while we were there. So Upain Bridge is almost all, you know, just stilts at this point. So we did the, you know, you walk across Upain Bridge, you take a little, um, this wonderful little canoe kind of uh, gondola style <laughs> canoe back to the village that we walked away from, which I never actually figured out the name of the village. I just knew Upain Bridge. Anyway, so we stopped at this weaver shop as we were leaving Upain and going back to um, Mandalay, I think is where we were at that point. Um, and so they had several large looms all uh, set up with various uh, fabrics, longi fabrics in process. Um, they had two large spinning wheels, all of the spinning wheels there again, hand operated. Um, none, I didn't see a single one, I think, ever that had foot treadles. They were all hand looms. They all sat on the floor and the person sat in front of them and, and operated it with their hands. Um, it had a This one had a big machine that transferred the yarns from the spinning bobbins onto whatever. And I don't, this is, I don't know weaving terminology quite as well. I know a couple of the parts of the loom, but there's a big roll that gets attached to the back of the loom that all of the, um, I think it's the warp. Don't quote me on this. One way of the threads is the warp. The other way is the weft. I think the warp is the one that goes upsy downy <laughs> and the weft is the one that goes across weavers correct me if i'm wrong um but anyway these big rolls would be what got attached to the back of the loom and the the yarns pulled off the threads pulled off that would make whatever that part is either the warp or the weft um so we saw that person operating that and again he was i think that was hand cranked i don't think that was mechanical it might have had a little generator engine on it i'd have to look at the picture again to see but there wasn't any real noise coming out of it um that one was beautiful and we did uh, my friend could in you know she can speak the language she did talk to a couple of the women about um, how much they got paid and what they earned and it's hard you know i don't even know that i want to say the numbers and unfortunately at this point because she talked to several different artisans as we traveled and got their amounts. So I, I really want to wait till she gets home and I can refresh my memory as to what she said people got paid. To us, it sounds like chicken feed. I mean, it sounds like so little money. Um, and I, I do think they probably are underpaid. But the flip side is, stuff is, I mean, the standard of living there is so much lower. Um, foreigners always get charged more. But I would say we had several meals. Where, well, there was one that there were eight of us that ate breakfast and the total bill came to $14 US. So that gives you a sense of the cost of living there. So, you know, $5 our money actually goes a fair amount of way, a long way there. So, you know, that's where you have to kind of put into your frame of reference 
they're telling me they're getting paid how much? That sounds horrible. But then you think, well, actually put it in context of this standard of living. And, you know, it's probably still a little on the low side, but it's livable. They can live off of that. Um, so anyway, at that shop, I bought four scarves. Um, that I gave uh, one as a specific Christmas gift. The other three were not official Christmas gifts because it was family members that we don't exchange with, but I was seeing them at Christmas. So I handed them to them, you know, and I said, this is not a Christmas gift. This is just a souvenir (laughs) and gave them. And and the four scarves, one went to a woman in my church um, that's always been a member of my family. The other three, one went to my mother-in-law, one went to my sister-in-law, and one went to my husband's aunt, my mother-in-law's sister that we you know, are very close to. And boy, they loved those scarves. They were so touched and it made me feel so good because I, you know, I hadn't really been sure. I knew they'd probably like the scarves, but I just kind of picked four colors I liked. (laughs) I didn't really know. Um, But the three that I actually saw open just loved them. All of them said, oh, I've got a thing that'll, you know, the outfit that'll go right with this. So that was really wonderful. They really liked those. Um, And I did buy myself a longi there, but it was, that was the one that I said it was not actually silk. It was cotton. Um, but I really, I love it. It has some applique stuff on it. It's very pretty. Um, the second weaver shop that we visited was in Inlay Lake, which is another huge um, tourist place. But it's neat because it's, yeah, it's a tourist trap, but there really are still people living in Inlay Lake. This is where, um, it's it's sort of like the Venice of Burma. The villages are actually in the middle of the lake. The houses are on stilts. People get around primarily by canoe or whatever they call their very long, narrow boats. Um, This is their way of life. They build, they actually create gardens on top of the water. And I'll talk about that in the other episode of how they do that. Um, But it's really, really, really cool. And some of my favorite pictures from my trip are there because obviously a lot of people make their living off of fish and they, you know, they spend their day as fishermen and then they bring the fish into the nearby landbound towns to sell, plus just eating it themselves just a really fascinating way of life. You know, it's one of those things that makes you really think about anthropology and and how hundreds of years ago, somebody decided, you know, the best thing to do is just build a, a village right in the middle of that lake. Who cares about the outside edges of it? It's just, it's just fascinating. Anyway, um, that was where we visited our second weaver shop. And it was, you know, clearly set up for tourists, but it was still pretty cool. Um, this one wove silk and cotton plus they wove fibers from lotus flower stems. And the stems on a lotus flower are actually fairly woody. Um, when I saw it, I thought it was tree branches. They had to say, no, this is lotus. And so I, I looked it up when I got home, and yeah, it's the stem of the lotus flower. Um, they soak it and then kind of hammer down the edges of it, and then they can pull these, they just tease out the fibers, and then they spin the fibers into a yarn. It makes a very nubby, Um, strong fiber, but surprisingly soft. Um, They spin them into scarves and shawls and things like that. Um, It was a lot more expensive. Uh, I didn't buy a lotus scarf because, (laughs) I mean, if if it's expensive by U.S. dollar standards, then you know it's expensive. Um, And, you know, I didn't like the feel of it enough to say, yeah, this, I would only be buying it for the novelty of it, not so much that I really wanted this, you know, it just wasn't soft enough for me, but it, it was soft enough. Um, it's just hard to feel that and then feel this gorgeous silk right next to it and think, oh yeah, I'll choose the Lotus. Um, I imagine it would probably be warmer and it's definitely more durable. 
And then they also, they kept some of the lotus thicker and would make more like woven mats and placemats and such out of it. But they did, like I said, it, it they turned it into a soft enough fiber to wear. Um, in that shop, I bought a set, essentially a coordinating fabric. You, you can often buy fabric for a long G packaged with a coordinating fabric that's meant for you to make a top of some sort. And I actually have one of those set of coordinating fabrics from when I was in Thailand. That's one of the ones I've always wanted to have something done with, and I just never have. But now I'm I'm inspired. I'm going to get it done. Um, but in any case, I bought a, a set of coordinating fabrics there, a long G with the um, solids, and those were silk um, for making a top. Then... We, um, again, just proceeding on with textile, then several days passed and we did lots of other stuff. <laughs> and then we got to Michina, um, M-Y-I-T-K-Y-I-N-A, if you're interested. Michina is the capital of the Kachin state, which is way up in the northernmost part of Burma. It um, borders with China. Um, and Michina is not as far towards the borders you can go, but it's pretty far north. And it's much further north than what I was when I was there in 1998. Um there was a seamstress tailor shop two doors down from our hotel. And so my friend Kadin um, had met her at one point because I, I was sick quite a bit during the trip. Um, there was only one day I'd actually, well, yeah, really only one day I missed some stuff that we were doing, but it was stuff I was like, okay with missing um, that I had to stay in my room. And then there was another day that I was in my room for the afternoon, but nobody was really doing anything that day. It was a kind of a relaxed day. So um, that was okay, but I was struggling with energy levels and such. So if I didn't have to be somewhere, a lot of times I would just go back to my room and try to rest. And um, so my friend Kadin had already been out and wandering and, and she came back and we met for dinner that night. And she said, oh, there's a seamstress. You've got to go and have her do something with the fabrics you bought, with the loan she you bought. And I was like, this was Sunday. No, this was Saturday night when we got into, we got into Michina on Saturday and I was going to be leaving to head to start the process of heading home um, early Wednesday morning. And I said, well, is she going to have time? Because at this point I now had three longi, no, two longi, and then the sil the solid for making the top. And I said, well, maybe I can just have her do the, the two longi. And she's like, no, no, she could probably make you a shirt too. I'm like, really? And I'm also thinking, by the way, I'm at least four sizes bigger than your average person from Burma. Um, <laughs> they are a small people. And, and Americans mostly aren't. Um, you know, even if I were at the weight I'm supposed to be at um, for my height, I'd still be two sizes bigger than most of them. So I'm like, huh, I really don't want to deal with, a, you know, a seamstress taking my measurements and, you know, what is she thinking about this large American woman? Um, but finally, uh, Kadin took me over, might have even been that night that we went and... Um, talked in, of course, this is all through interpretation because this woman didn't speak any English. So Kadin was, you know, interpreting for me. And uh, she showed me what she would do with Longi. And because she's two doors down from a hotel, it's a hotel that gets a lot of the Westerners in there, the people who are in NGOs or government work. Um, tourists are still a new thing. It, just the last couple of years have there been tourists, but there have been NGOs and government workers for sometime from a variety of Western countries, U.S. being one of the least of them. I actually, um, several places I went when people saw that I was, you know, obviously not from there, they asked me if I was German. 
So clearly there is a strong German presence in Burma. There's also, we kept running into people from Australia and New Zealand um, that were tourists. So, which makes sense because you're actually not that far from there. I didn't even realize that until I was watching the flight map um, as I was flying in and saw Burma. And all of a sudden I was like, wait, there's Australia like right there. It must only be maybe a six hour flight, six or eight hours, maybe. Anyway, there were a lot of Australian and New Zealand tourists. So shout out to Ozzy Pippen, Miss Charlotte. I was meeting a lot of your compatriots in Burma. Um, anyway, another digression, but this, this woman, the seamstrip shop, because she was so close to the hotel, she had done a lot of um, longi for Westerners. In other words, none of us want to deal with the knot. <laughs> We're not used to it. So um, she showed me how she would do uh, either hooks and loops or zippers or whatever. And I actually ended up buying one more longi there because she had traditional we are now in Kachin state she herself was ethnically Kachin her shop specialized in Kachin fabrics although she did have some other ones but um my friend Kadin being Kachin was like oh you really should buy a Kachin one I'm like I've already got Kachin ones at home but okay you know I'm in the Kachin state I should buy a, a Kachin um longi so I bought one there and it was very inexpensive um gosh I don't remember I think I only paid maybe $12 US for that longi. Um, in any case, so I ended up having her do three longi. One, the kitchen one she did with hooks. It's very, a very simple thing. She kind of sewed part of it into a tube that I put on and then wrapped the other part around me and hook it. And the reason she does it that way is so that it looks like you've actually done the knot. It looks like a longi is supposed to look. It's just um, hooked instead of knotted. And then um, I gave her the other two longi I had bought, and she decided she wanted to do both of those with zippers because they are, you know, fancier um, kind of longi, and she just thought it would look better with zippers, and she could fit it more closely. This is the other problem: longi are supposed to fit snugly along the top, and I am not used to wearing snug things, so I was a little uncomfortable with, you know, is this going to look too tight? Is it going to look ridiculous on me? Um, but she actually, again, she did it well. Um, plus. I lost seven pounds. <laughs> I was in Burma, so they actually fit me better after she made them than they had when she was measuring me. Um, but then with the top, um, remember I said I had a coordinating silk fabric that went with one of the longi. I said, you know, do you have time to make a top out of this? Oh, no problem. She, you know, she said through Kadin, she could easily get it done. And so she had a stack of magazines and I'd been kind of flipping through them while my friend Kadin was getting fitted for a couple of things she was having done. And um, I'd seen a top I kind of liked. And I said, well, you know, could you do something like this? And she looked at the fabric. She's like, I don't have enough fabric for that. Um, The one I had chosen was like a full top and it had maybe three quarter length sleeve. She's like, there's not enough fabric there for that. But, um, you know, I could make you something with like a cap sleeve. And she said I could do, I could add uh, lace to it if I needed to. And I, I finally just said, okay, you know, do whatever you want. Just make a shirt and... I'll just, you know, I, I had no idea what I was going to end up with, but I decided that was part of the adventure. And by the way, she only charged me, um, $8 for the first longi to be done with the hooks. The other two were $10 because they included a zipper, which meant she had to do a little more, you know, obviously a little more work on them plus the cost of the zipper. And I think she ended up having to add a little bit of fabric in the panel because of the way she had it folded across. She had to add just a little bit of invisible fabric in the middle to get it to line up correctly. 
Um, those each cost me $10 to do. And I think the blouse she made me, I think, was only about $10 US. I don't remember now what I paid, but I remember thinking, wow, that's stinking cheap. And it was only as much as it was because she had to add lace um, to it. And then the, the buttons there, I think, do we call them frogs? <laughs> I think is the style of button where it's it's a very distinctly Asian button where it's um, embroidered on either side and then it's got a, hoop, a loop that goes over a button um, in the middle. I think we call them frog buttons. I'm not sure. Not a garment sewer. Um, but it was kind of weird thinking I had no idea what she was going to make until I saw it. And I was thrilled when I saw it because it was actually something I would wear. I was a little worried that it would be too frou-frou for me. And even so, it's a little bit nicer, I mean, a little fancier than what I would wear normally, but it's certainly something I wore it, actually, I wore that outfit on Christmas Eve, um, and I could see myself wearing it maybe under a blazer or something in, in other settings with jeans or whatever. It's, you know, it's, it's a neat top, definitely Asian looking top, but that's okay, because, you know, I was in Asia. Um, so that was really cool. And she got them done, and darn it, the, the first lingerie she did with me with the hooks I had, she had actually measured me while I was still wearing my pants. So it was actually a little bit big when it was finished. And I had to go back in and have her adjust that one. Um, and then she did the other ones. And all in, I think I paid you know, $40 for all of that to be done. And when she did the, the zipper ones, um, I actually, she re-measured me. And I, you know, kind of pulled my pants down a little bit so she could get at my waist without the pants being there. And so when I tried those on, they fit perfectly. Oh, my word. I mean, they fit perfectly. Um, so, and I decided, you know, but part of what I kept putting off with the other ones that I had here at home was not only knowing who to ask to get to do it, but also I keep thinking, well, I'll lose weight. I'll wait till I lose weight. Well, you know, I, I can have them redone when I lose weight. I'm just going to get them done so I can wear them now. And then if I need to get them tailored again later so that I can wear them if I lose weight later, or when I lose weight later, I can do that too. Um, but as it is now, I've actually got lungy I can actually wear, which is nice. Um, and it was, it was really fun actually kind of turning things over to her and just say, you know, do whatever you want to do. Now, honestly, in the back of my mind, I knew that if I hated the blouse when I got home, I'd just cut it up and use it as scrap fabric and a quilt. So, you know, I stole the fabric. Um, but it, it turned out to be a nice blouse and I will, I don't know if I'll, post a picture of me in it or if I'll just lay it out on the floor or a bed or something so you can see it but they, it, it's really really pretty um she did a very nice job and like I said I wore it on on Christmas Eve and a couple of my friends from you know originally from Burma came up to me and they they were very complimentary that oh you apparently you bought something <laughs> in it's like yeah um now that particular outfit is not a distinct style in fact pretty sure that the design might have come from Thailand um but, you know, still they recognized it having, since I was just back from Burma, they recognized it as being from their part of the world. And so here's the part of my experience with the seamstress that only quilters would understand. Um, because the fabric I had for the top, the shirt, was this beautiful deep red silk, I had told, I'd asked my friend Kadin if she could interpret and ask the seamstress if I could have the scraps from my longi and my top because I could use them in quilts 
And so she said that to the seamstress and the seamstress kind of shook her head and it turned out she didn't think she had enough fabric. She didn't have enough fabric from the Longi themselves um, to give me any scraps. She had some of the silk. So I did get some of the red silk back, but then she asked Kadin a couple of questions and Kadin said, would you like, you know, she interpreted back to me. She said, would you like scraps from other traditional Kachin designs? I said, oh, sure, I'll take a few scraps. Well, she and the two uh, girls who worked with her one, I think it was her daughter. The other one was an employee, um, started digging through the scrap bags. I actually had to get them to stop. because <laughs> I was like, I don't think I've got room for any more. They handed me quite a stack of scraps, um, all of which have different types of, you know, kitchen embroidery designs on them. Um, and I was really excited. Kitchen was, just, or Kadin was just kind of um, shaking her head at me. And I was like, I'm sorry, Kadin. Only a quilter would understand that for me, these scraps are probably the most exciting souvenir. <laughs> I've bought. So I will post a picture of the scraps. It was just really fun to, you know, they kept pulling them out and running them over to me. Would this work? Would this work? I'm like, yeah, I could work with this. I could work with this. And like I said, I finally had to say, okay, okay, enough, um, which is uh, Rumsai in Kachin is enough. And we were taught how to say Rumsai and Krusai is Krusai is I'm full. Enough, enough, I'm full, because otherwise they will keep feeding you. <laughs> so I knew those two phrases. And so I was like, Rumsai, Rumsai. <laughs> I don't need any more scraps. And finally I had to stop them because otherwise I probably would have ended up with a big garbage bag full of them. So um, that was that was an entertaining thing. And, and I was joking with Jane later because Jane hadn't been with us, my my roommate, the other woman I was traveling with. When we were packing, she I, they fell on the floor or something and she pulled them up. She goes, oh, there's a rip in this. I said, no, no, that's a, that's a scrap. And I started laughing again. I was like, really? Only quilters would understand. But it was, I just, I love, you know, that's truly my favorite um, souvenir is all these scraps I have of these beautiful fabrics. Now, no clue what I'm going to do with them, but I'll figure something out. They can all be fussy cut and I may, I don't know, who knows, I might do a giveaway with one or two of them at some point. Um, so that was just an entertaining moment um, that, yes, I ended up with some scraps and it was very, very exciting. Um, I may actually end up with one more longi. I really don't need another one. But on the very last morning we were there, before we, the, my friend and I got on the plane to start heading home, um, we stopped by the uh, Kachin Baptist Convention Women's Department, which is, you'll hear about all that in the other episode. Um, but this was, that was the reason I was in Michina, was to meet with Kachin Baptist Convention women. And so the, the last morning we were there, we actually saw their offices. I'd been with them all week, but we actually went to visit their office that last morning. And she had, um, their director had a stack of Longi fabrics that they were selling as fundraisers. And I didn't have a lot of, I mean, that was the, literally the very last thing we were doing before we were getting in the van and heading to the airport. So I did not have much time, but, and I, I really didn't, I was like, oh shoot, I wish I'd seen these before. I would have saved and, you know, bought some. And then I laid eyes on this one fabric. I was like, oh, my word. <laughs> it was, oh, it was gorgeous. And my friend Kadin was still going to be there for another 10 days. And she was already, you know, going through some of them and saying, oh, I'll come back and buy some. I'll come back and do some shopping. So I, I handed her 20 bucks and I said, get me one. And so I'm sure I'm going to have another one. I told her which one I, you know, which of the fabrics I really liked. Um, they had several that were that same fabric. I didn't really care the design. Oh, the fabric was just beautiful. Um, they have a lot of the cross-woven fabrics where it's they use one color on the warp and one color on the weft. So kind of depending on what, what way you hold it in the light, you kind of get different effects. And I love cross-woven fabric. I have some of it here in my quilting stash that I haven't cut into yet because I haven't dreamed up the perfect project for it. Um, 
but that's what this fabric oh it's just beautiful anyway so i may still be getting another longi um and actually she might have that one made up for me because the seamstress still has my measurements so kitchen uh, kadin was saying oh yeah i'll just take it to her and she'll do another one with you know the same way she did the other same measurements i'm like great do it <laughs> not a problem so that'll be fun to see if that comes home with her um so that was the story of the longi and having those made up we did see uh, several more weavers um in the IDP camps, uh, IDP stands for Internally Displaced Persons, and that was part the main reason I was up in Michina, because there's several IDP camps up there, but I'll talk about that in the other episode. Um, but they have both uh, sewing classes um, for people in the IDP camps, again, to teach marketable skills, and they also had weavers in one of them that we went into. I don't think they've got weaving in every camp, but this one did. And so we went to visit them, um, and... <laughs> I noticed in several places that I went to, spinning wheels actually made from bike parts. They had, you know, the bike wheel with the rubber tire removed was the spinning wheel itself, um, you know, spokes and all. And then they, a lot of them had the chain and the pedal set up as where the they would hand crank the spinning wheel. It, it was really, it made a whole lot of sense when I saw it. Um, so they had spinning wheels made from bike parts there. They used, uh, I took a great picture of the wall um, it, because traditional homes in Burma are generally speaking, depending on what part of the country you're in, thatch. Um, so they're done with bamboo uh, sides um, done as thatch. Well, not thatch. Woven strips of bamboo sheeting. Um but in any case, they, they just stick their scissors in the, the wall <laughs> to hold the scissors. It made a very nice little scissors holder. I thought about the money I spend on, you know, my 3M things to hold my scissors on my wall. And I think if only I had a thatch wall, I could just stick the scissor right in the wall. Um, but in any case, there was one woman who was just finishing weaving one whole length of fabric and so um, they were selling it off, you know, to raise funds for the camp and for her personally as the weaver. And so um, I bought a couple of lengths of fabric that she had woven. I'm going to cut each one into two so that I have four total shawls. Um, and I'm going to use those as gifts for my colleagues in the office and one of my national teams. And of course, I took a picture with her that I'm going to give, you know, each person that I've given the gift. I'll say this is the woman who wove this piece. And that one was cool. That was the one and only place I actually bought the piece of fabric I had been watching being woven because she was just finishing up the one of them. The other, I have black and I have blue. The the black one she took right off the loom and cut up for me and my friend Jane. We split it between us, and even at that, it's still enough that I can split it in two and still have shawl length. Um, the other one she had woven, but it was previous. It's a blue background, um, so that's pretty cool to actually have the picture of the woman who wove it um, that I can give to the people who will get the gifts of it. Um, we also visited a Kachin cultural center uh, where they had two women making silk thread from cocoons, which I which I'd watched happen once at a fiber festival. Um, but this it was pretty cool watching this this woman. Oh, she had the greatest face. She just had so much character in her face. I took a lot of pictures of her spinning, not just because it was cool to watch her spinning silk from cocoon, but because she had the greatest face. Just this wizened older woman that looked like she had been doing this you know from the dawn of time um she also wore no gloves so her hands were dyed all sorts of interesting colors um it was just it was cool to watch her working uh she was actually soaking 
the cocoons, and I, there's a word for it, and I don't remember what it is, but the silk worm cocoons, she was soaking them in water and then pulling the threads off and spinning the threads into silk thread. Um, and I noticed that the cocoons in the water were this gorgeous pale blue. And I, I asked at first, I said, do they dye them before they, they spin the thread? And I, I couldn't quite figure out because that's not the way I thought it had been done. And so Kadin asked the question, translated, and it turned out, no, they're that pretty pale blue strictly because of the minerals in the water in which they were being soaked to spin. And it was, I mean, it's a gorgeous blue. Um, but my guess is maybe the color fades, maybe, you know, as the fibers dry or whatever. But then they do dye them after spinning. And they had some that they had just dyed laying out to cure in the sun. And it was this most gorgeous purple. I was like ready to say, hey, could I just buy that off of you? But it hadn't been spun yet. So it would have been hard to work with. Um, I'm not good enough at spinning to really work with silk yet. I have some silk here at home haven't tackled it yet because it's that's tricky um anyway then the weavers they actually have a style of backstrap loom now i've seen backstrap looms here the corinne um, use a backstrap loom but the the corinne's backstrap loom it's it's actually literally the weaver sits becomes part of the loom she wraps um the strap around her back and then the warp is attached to the front of her you know just uh, to a belt kind of coming off the front of her and goes up to whatever they tie it to. Now, in their homes, they would tie it to a tree because it's, you know, kind of semi-tropical weather. So um, three quarters of the year, they just do all their weaving outside. And so she would actually tie the other end of it just to a tree, and then she would be the loom, and that's how she would weave. Um, the Kachin backstrap looms, however, they still had the backstrap. They still put the pressure on the weft, but then the other end of it near their feet was actually more of a traditional loom style. It was a wooden brace with the heddles that they would move back and forth. The heddles are the big things that drop up and down. That's the only other term I know of of a, weave, a loom. Um, they're the ones that actually switch the, the um, warp thread, if that's the long one, back and forth in order to make the weft thread go through it, you know, alternating times. And the way they they switch the heddles is they have a strip of fabric attached to their toes, and they just flip their toes one way or the other, and that's how they flip the heddles up and down. I did take pictures, which I will get posted on my blog, so if I just totally lost you in that description, you'll see pictures of how it works. Um, I also took some videos, but I haven't... It takes a while for my phone to transfer the videos, and they haven't finished all transferring yet, so that's why I'm kind of waiting on the blog post. Um, so anyway, it was kind of neat to see the difference in backstrap looms even among two different ethnic groups from Burma you know so even they don't all do it the same which is pretty cool um so that's my all the textile stuff that I met while I was in Burma just as a brief recap of stuff I'd talked about before I left that if you've been listening you know I was working on um the applique dove that I had made to gift to a man that my father had worked with um we did go to meet him and I'll talk about that again in that other episode. Unfortunately, he was um, quite a bit more uh, ill, disabled from a stroke than I had been led to believe he was. I'm not entirely sure he was actually aware that I was gifting him this applique dove or why he he would be able to, to kind of look at me and meet my eyes, but not consistently. So I don't really know how much was soaking in. I know he knew this person was there that he had never met before. 
and this person was telling him stories. But how much of it he was actually understanding, I don't know. But his wife certainly did. And Kadin translated, you know, everything I was saying for her. And I think she also spoke some English, so she was able to get, you know, some of what I was saying. And she seemed to be touched. So that was, I mean, I'm for me making it for him, it was not a matter of being appreciated. It was just for me to be able to show him the respect and the thanks for the work he had done. Um, and that was a really very emotional <laughs> meeting. But again, I'll talk about that at the on the other episode. Um, and then all those scarves that I dyed, um, I think were very much appreciated. It's people from Burma are not overtly demonstrative most of the time. So, you know, you don't get the same kind of effusive thanks you might from somebody here, but you can read into, you know, what they are doing and saying. Um, the first scarf I gave to a little girl I spent some time with, and I'll tell her story on my other episode. Um, the next set I gave several to women um, that I met in Mandalay, a, a women's ministry group that I met there. I gave, there were about maybe eight, eight or 10 women, something like that that I gave out there. And then, so I get to Michina and I only had about 15 of these scarves left. And I didn't really know who I was going to be meeting or how many women were going to be involved in each thing. It was, you know, I just knew certain things had been set up for me. Well, the first meeting I had, there were about 18 women that showed up and I immediately knew, well, I can't hand out scarves only to some of them. So I didn't hand out any at that meeting. Um, because again, I knew some of those women were going to be with me, you know, over the next several days. So I figured, okay, I've got time to figure this out. Then um, we went to four different IDP camps. I might've had 16 scars left. Anyway, we went to four different IDP camps. And what I ended up doing was at each IDP camp, in some cases, I talked directly to people who, well, in, in all cases, I talked to people who were living there, two IDPs. But in three of the cases, I was talking just to the camp leaders, either the women or the men. I had to, in a couple of cases, ask for the women leaders who were in charge of women's stuff going on at the camp. So what I very quickly decided to do was rather than giving individuals a scarf and just give it to them as a gift, I named them a prayer scarf. And I said to each person, you know, I'd like to give you this scarf and to show you that I'm praying for you. And then I'd like you to pass it along. Next time you have somebody you're praying for, share it with her and then she will pass it along to the next person. So I kind of made them inclusive of whoever else might be in the camp. And I did that with three scarves at each of the four camps. And then I had just enough left over. Um, There were four of the Kachin Baptist women accompanying us on the day that we went to all the camps and then the next day when we did just some kind of sightseeing, I think it was the same women both times. So I gave it, um, I gave the four to them and then I did the same thing. I said, you know, I would like, these are my prayers for you. And then if you would like to pass this on to somebody else. And, and one of the women did, we ran into another woman, um, from their leadership team later and she immediately prayed for her and handed it to her. So I could see one happening. Um, now, you know, who knows the, the scarves may never, I, I suspect what will happen is they'll get passed along maybe for the first couple of months and then they'll end up in somebody's closet and that's fine. You know, at least they know that I had brought this gift for them and I got lots of pictures with women wearing the scarf so that I could show those to my women back home, my women, uh, <laughs> the, the women that I work with. Um, so th- that was nice, and I was really glad I had done it. Of course, I kind of wished I had done a lot more, but there was no freaking way I could have fit them in my suitcase, so I did enough. Um, and and other than that, from a textile perspective, you know, that was really everything that had to do with fabric that I experienced while I was there. Um, had to hold myself back in several cases from buying 
a lot more laundry because they, they really are beautiful. They really, really are. Um, I took a lot of great pictures that will inspire future hand dyeing and art quilt projects, I am sure. Um, I'm still in the process of trying to upload them into some sort of an album that makes sense. And then actually all four of us that went are going to combine all of our photos into one big album and then pick and choose the best, you know, representation of each thing for uh, presentations we're going to do at church. And then we're going to do like a book, you know, kind of a photo book for each of us from our trip. And we'll use whatever selection of photos we choose. Um, and a lot of the things I was there specifically to do, I was not able to take pictures while I was doing it. And so, um, Kidin's husband, Don actually kind of acted as staff photographer. I kept calling him, but you know, the first day I did, I was like, Oh, thank you so much for taking those photos. I really appreciate it. He's like, well, that's kind of what I feel like I'm here to do. So the rest of the trip, I referred to him as the staff photographer. And then I started saying, could you get a picture of this? And it was, it was really pretty funny, but he, um, he took it graciously and Hopefully, he's a good photographer. I haven't actually seen any of the photos yet. So that's the textile mix of this episode. Like I said, sometime in the next couple of days, I will record an episode that talks about the trip as a whole, about some of the specific things I went to do. Um, I'll give a little bit of background about the situation in Burma and Myanmar. So if you don't know what's been going on there for, frankly, the last 50 years, you'll get a little bit of that history. I'll try not to spend too much time on it, but I need to give a little bit of background so you even understand why I'm going in the first place. Um, And they've actually told me I'm already on the docket for a program in 2016. (laughs) So I don't know. I I made no promises. I have no idea if I'm going to be able to go. Um, I certainly know if I do go again, I'm not taking malaria medication. Absolutely not. Oh my word, I was sick as a dog. Um, And it was definitely side effects from the medication. When I finally got on internet and was able to look at all the possible side effects when I, you know, decided that that could easily be what the cause was, I had, you know, probably experienced two thirds of the list of possible side effects at one point or another during that trip. Um, But again, maybe I'll talk about that on the other episode. Um, just to say that could be why I'm still struggling to get my energy levels back. It's not just the 12 hour time difference in jet lag, although that, you know, that's a significant part of it, but it was, I think my body just went through a ringer while I was there. Um, so I'm still really struggling to get enough energy to like go grocery shopping, made me break out into a cold sweat this morning. (laughs) So, so we're working on it. Fortunately, I don't go back to work until January 4th. So I've got time to recover. And I'm being pretty careful about social engagements. Um, I got home to be invited to things every single night. I could have been out every single night from Christmas Eve until New Year's Day. And I had to say to my husband, okay, here's the things I will go to. Here are the things I can't because otherwise I am not going to recover. I've just got to be careful. So that's kind of my goal. Anyway, um, speaking of which, I am going out tonight. (laughs) It's my sister-in-law's 50th birthday, although I'm more going to be making an appearance and leaving early um, because my, like I said, we've got my family Christmas tomorrow, so I don't want to wipe myself out tonight. Um, So it'll be Monday before people hear from me much again, but I do hope to record the other episode on Monday, plus get some sewing done. I haven't cranked up my machine much yet. Um, I just did some test stitching since I just picked it up from the spa, Uh, but I am prepping some stuff for a new craftsy class that I did succumb to their end of the year sale and bought. It's the Sue Spargo class on embroidery, um, wool felt embroidery. I love her work. I've got 
one of her books I've used a few times to do some stitches, so I thought it would be fun to do her project. And then I watched the first lesson. I'm like, holy cow, this is going to be a lot of work. So I've been, I decided I probably won't get it done before the end of the year, but I can at least get um, the background prepped and the, the butterflies, it has a butterfly pattern prepped so that I can then be working on the stitching, you know, at home in front of the TV through January. That'll be nice. So anyway, um, that's what's been going on. Textile mix. And I guess for now, I will just leave it with that until next time. Oh, I'm sorry. First, here's how you get a hold of me. You can email me at sandyquilts at gmail.com. Sandy with a Y, quilts with a Z. You can um, follow the blog. You can find me on I don't have my notes in front of me for this, so pardon me if I forget one. Uh, you can find me on Pinterest, Goodreads, Flickr, Craftsy, all of those places. I'm Sandy Quilts. Oh, and Twitter, Sandy Quilts, Sandy with a Y, Quilts with a Z. Um, you can follow the blog. You can uh, like the Quilting for the Rest of Us page on Facebook. And you can join the Quilting for the Rest of Us Kiva team, which, by the way, we have a lot of members now, which is really pretty cool. Um, I'll talk more about that at some other episode. And... Um, you will find links to, to all of that on the uh, on my blog at www.quiltingfortherestofus.com. And I swear before I record another episode, I will be more awake. Um, so until next time, go get your quilty on. Quilting for the Rest of Us is dedicated to Shirley. Love you, Mom. 